Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Barbara Natterson Horwitz and Catherine Bowers, the authors of the new book, Wildhood, The Astounding Connections Between Human and Animal Adolescence. They're also the New York Times bestselling authors of Zubiquity. Barbara and Catherine have spent years studying the links between human adolescence and adolescence in animals, and they've found some surprising connections. Barbara is a professor both at Harvard and at UCLA, and she is an evolutionary biologist. Catherine is a animal behaviorist and a writer who has taught at UCLA and Harvard as well. After teaming up to write the best-selling book, Zubiquity, Barbara and Catherine couldn't help but notice the parallels between adolescence in animals and adolescence in humans. They started researching the subject and they ended up creating a course for college students on the topic and the final result is this new book, Wildhood. Really excited to speak with Barbara and Catherine today about the four high-stakes tests that they have found shape the destiny of every adolescent on Earth. How to be safe, how to socialize, how to connect romantically, and how to live independently. Barbara and Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. A good place usually to kind of jump in is sort of what led you to team up and to choose this topic and to spend this immense amount of time writing this book. Yeah, well, uh, this is Barbara and Catherine and I have been working together for over 10 years to explore what we can learn about human health and development from the natural world and particularly from other species, from animals and especially from wild animals. So I'm a cardiologist and a psychiatrist, and Catherine is an, an animal behaviorist. And our first book was uh, called Zubiquity, and we looked at across the animal kingdom at cancer and heart disease and eating disorders and anxiety. And we learned a lot. And during that period of time, we also happened to be uh, both raising adolescents, or they were coming into adolescence. And so we mm. ended up turning the lens that we developed to study all these medical problems and psychiatric problems, we turned it to teenage life. And that's how Wildhood was born. This is, this is Catherine. And yeah, yeah, what happened was we, um, we had been working on these for 10 years. And found ourselves with with adolescent animals of our own each of our in each of our separate households and we just, herd of, yes yeah. yeah yeah we just couldn't help but uh but apply our 
knowledge to what we saw in the, out in the field. We were up in Northern California by the coast of Monterey, and we were looking out into the ocean, and we were with a biologist who was telling us about uh, the area, which is full of great white sharks. And the sea mammals that live there have learned not to go into that this area that has all these sharks. And he said, oh, except for there is one that will go in there. And we said, what, what is that animal? And he said, well, the teenage, the adolescent otters. And Barbara and I looked at each other and we said, adolescent otters that are taking risks that, you know, that their elders and their youngers don't take? This we have to look more closely at. It's amazing how many parallels there are and how much can inform uh, our views on human adolescence. And in the book, it's really done in a cool way. You guys follow kind of four stories of different animals that are kind of, you know, coming of age or going through adolescence in their own ways. And then we learn different lessons about kind of these four universal journeys or kind of uh, missions that are sort of fundamental to adolescence throughout the planet. Yeah. You know, we're, it, it's a book about, about human life. I mean, it's trying to understand, you know, a- adolescence, you know, in, in, in our species, but we were turning to other animals and there's a lot of, you know, deep scientific research, but we also wanted to tell stories that were based on reality. So what we did is we found studies that had actually looked at adolescent animals and their journeys using radio collar tracking and GPS. And we were able to find these four stories, one um, that illustrates the first of four competencies that you have to have to be a mature adult. So it turns out whether you're a penguin, whether you're a hyena, whether you're a humpback whale, or whether you're a wolf, if you want to be a mature adult, you have got to, number one, learn to be safe. That is, you need to protect yourself from predators. Number two, you need to learn about status, which means social hierarchies and social systems and figuring out how to make friends and avoid enemies and all that. Okay, that sounds familiar. Number three, you've got to learn about, really, it's about sexual communication. So it's not just about how to have sex, because it turns out if you put animals together, um, you know, sex itself, that part of it, the mechanics are relatively easy. It's the courtship, the communication, it's the understanding, the expressing, the winning over. All that takes a long time and a lot of practice. So number three is sex. And then the fourth competency that we illustrated with these stories was learning to be self-reliant, literally finding your own food, feeding yourself so Mm. that you don't go out in the world and starve to death. Literally, if you're one of of, of these wild animals, um, but, you know, figuratively, if you go in the world and you're not prepared to make a living, it's a problem. So it was safety, status, sex, and self-reliance. And each of the animals in the book tells the story of one of those competencies. Can you talk about what it means to be predator-naive versus predator-aware? Yeah, so that's a term that um, that wildlife biologists use for adolescent animals who haven't had enough exposure to danger, and they do really dumb things. They uh, <laughs> and and they do dumb things, and they sometimes suffer the consequences. And I mean, you know, capital C consequences. Ah. So, predator naive, a naivete is anything from not recognizing a predator who's hiding, who's camouflaged 
to going into an area that older, more experienced animals know is way too dangerous. You just don't go there, like the Triangle of Death that Catherine was talking about. Um, but the flip side of that predator naivete is that it drives a behavior called predator inspection. And it turns out predator inspection is what takes you from being naive to aware and safe. And so what we found is that across, I mean, we're talking about from bats to gazelle to uh, it, it, lots and lots of adolescent animals will move toward and not away from predators. And they will, it seems insane. We have video of a bunch of species doing this. They do it together the way a bunch of teens will do something when they're together that they might not do on their own. They literally, we have a video of a group of meerkats adolescents going toward a cobra um, and smelling it and looking at it. And it's, it's insane. But it turns out these studies that have looked at predator inspection shows that if a predator naive adolescent doesn't get some experience with danger, they're never going to be safe. Hmm. And it's so interesting because these near misses, these near misses that cause them to be safe, even though they're scary, uh, as Barbara was saying, really do provided they survive them, keep them safer later in life. But they, they sometimes have those near-miss experiences by themselves. But the learning, the learning experience is heightened and, um, and, and even better if they're with a peer or a peer group. And so you know, sometimes we hear that human teens take more risks when they're with their friends. Yeah. You know, they, they drive faster. Other animals do that too. And that leads us to hypothesize that this is a, this kind of behavior actually has the safety flip side, that it gives them the experience, the exposure that they need um, to be safer as adults. We have lots of studies about this in the book, and one of them found that not only being with peers and watching peers make mistakes can make an animal safer, but also hanging around more experienced peers and having them sort of mentor the younger animal in what's safe and what isn't safe, that can also help. Okay, I hear that, but isn't isn't getting together with friends and doing risky things what we don't want teenagers to do? Or is that as long as they survive it within reason, it's it's good? Or how do we how do we draw the line or know when it's when it's bad? Yeah, that's exactly the question. Obviously, and uh, what's interesting about this research is that we found these really paradoxical things that we thought were. At first, really head scratchers, and then the the longer we sat with it and thought about it, the more we realized, well, wait a minute, maybe this is just decodes everything. So yes, there's no question that uh, we know that that peers can get human teenagers into a huge amount of trouble. I mean, the fact that kids are not allowed to drive with their friends in the car for the first mm -hmm. I don't know, like six months or whatever it is, it, I mean, that's directly related to the statistics that you know it's 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 not safe now why would that be well it turns out when kids get together their risk taking the threshold to take a risk is lower and that's based on this this brain biology right but then what is the evolution of this brain biology why is it that way and one of the theories that we have is that predator inspection actually this this really important learning about your predator behavior is made safer when you do it with others and so it would make sense that there would be this biology of risk-taking with peers. Now, so there's this paradox that, it, that gaining exposure to danger is necessary to become safe, 
But on the other hand, when you're exposed to danger, you're exposing yourself to risk. So that's true whether you're a meerkat and it's true whether you're a, a human. So what, do you, what is a parent supposed to do? What is a teenager supposed to do? One of the things that we learned is that, you know, there's no like universal every species playbook, but as a general principle, avoiding danger like completely is a really bad move from a safety perspective. And that may seem paradoxical, but it's not. And that one of the things we learn about animals is that they gain exposure to danger in a safe way by, um, there is safety in numbers. They do observe um, parents, they do observe peers. And that, but that being isolated is actually one of the most dangerous things that happens. If you're an isolated adolescent fish or bird um, or mammal, you won't really learn ever to be safe. It's also interesting to think about what the modern human version of a predator is. Yeah. Since we don't have, you know, eagles dropping from the sky to carry us off, or right. um, most of the time there aren't sort of lions waiting to, to jump, jump us from behind. So uh, if you think about the things that are dangerous and that can kill human beings, um, we have diseases and, you know, we have wars and shootings and murderers and those those kinds of, of scary dangers. And when you look at horror films and g games that people play and books that people read and TV shows, a lot of the times the ones that appeal to teens uh, do have to do with what we think is sort of like a, a human literary predator inspection of allowing the reader in the safety of her own bedroom or the you know the the privacy of of their internet connection to get cl up close to the things that are scary and dangerous and that could kill them, uh, investigate them a little bit, learn about them uh, without actually exposing themselves to the risk. So there, there's there's something there I think uh, for teens to take away. Yeah. So just not necessarily a bad thing to be spending time, a lot of time on Netflix watching things that uh, are, are have teenagers in them and show, uh, you know, situations that they could get involved in. Well, that was one of our head scratching moments that Barbara and I had was, you know, why are, why are teens sort of the, the audience for horror and roller coasters and scary things like yeah. that. And adults seem to have quote unquote outgrown them. But that could be that just yeah. that the, the brain biology and the sort of socializing of an adolescent is um, more open to those um, those scary things of inspecting, inspecting the mentally rehearsing yeah. kind of like survival situations. Then yeah. yeah, that's nicely put. Mentally rehearsing. You talk about kind of salmon in a study who are uh, either exposed to predators or not, and they kind of look at the strategies that they adopt in order to then get away from predators when they're reintroduced. And there's like a few different strategies that they use. And I was wondering if you think there are, you know, parallels between those uh, salmon strategies and anything, you know, that in human adolescence. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that study, I mean, it's, it's, um, there's, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you order wild or farmed salmon and you're trying to kind of like, okay, which am I supposed to order? Like, what's the, what's the upside and downside? Why is one twice as expensive <laughs> as the other one? Exactly. Is it worth it? 
some more experienced salmon. It, 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 yeah, I mean, this is, um, we don't have the answer to that question, but it turns out uh, there's a big difference between being a farmed salmon where you're protected and really raised in a kind of in a pen where there are no predators and being a wild, you know, young salmon growing up, by the time they're adolescents, by the time they're smolts, and they're, by the way, there are all these cool terms for adolescent animals. We, we say that all animals and adolescents are in their wildhood, which is the name of the book, but there are, um, like smolts are adolescent salmon, and there's this great word uh, for an adolescent eel called an elver. But in any event, when a wild salmon becomes an adolescent, um, they know the moves. They're kind of, they're, they're ocean smart. They're, they're, they're sea smart, let's say. And the ones that are farmed aren't. They, yeah. they have to go into the sea for a period of time to, you know, they're going to get larger and larger. And the ones that are farmed, they, uh, there was one study that, that it was like a 95% pred predation rate wow. because they were so naive. In fact, the, their, their predators would wait by the outlet for them to be released because they were just, it, it, it was just completely, you know, ridiculous. So that these... Feeding these, frenzy. Exactly. But the, the, the lessons that you learn from that, from the farm salmon versus the wild, is that, again, experience is really important and overprotection is just just not the right way to uh, be safe. It's, it's a short-term gain for a long-term, you know, <laughs> big loss. There's an interesting lesson learned about peer behavior, too, from that study, which is that salmon, um, you know, you've seen them schooling, and fish schooling is a protective behavior because they, you know, there's safety in numbers, and they can, they look bigger to a predator, and they're, you know, harder to catch. But salmon have formed with the instinct to school, but they need to literally practice with other fish so that their bodies line up and they move their, their bodies closer together and swim in the same direction. And if you raise a fish in a tank by itself, it never learns how to school. It's like trying to clap with one hand. It needs the other fish around it in order to learn those physical skills. Some of the things that need to be learned during adolescence are gestures and sounds that indicate status and how to, you know, navigate their place within the group. So what, I guess, what were the kind of lessons on that that you guys saw from other species? Yeah, it was interesting to think about anxiety, which is a really big issue with teenagers today. And, um, you know, there's you know, do other animals have anxiety? And the answer is yes. I, I feel pretty confident in saying that. And it's not anthropomorphizing. It's, it's based on brain biology. So what is human anxiety? What does it mean? So there's fear, right? Where, where the brain, uh, you know, is having an experience which is signaling, uh, hey, you know what? There's something really dangerous going on. Change what, change what you're doing. And animals experience fear when there's a predator nearby. Anxiety is a different neurobiology, which has to do with uh, being in a social group and what's going on with your status. Now, status is kind of a, you kind of think of it as a, uh, not such a nice word. It's like, you know, cars and clothes and it's not, but, but it actually is the word that's used in animal behavior and it has to do with being a social animal, living in a hierarchy and mm. all social animals do, including us. When, when our status goes up, our brain chemistry changes. When our status goes down, it changes in a different way, but it changes. And the same thing is true we found in our research in fish and birds and other mammals. So what does all that mean? It means that you can look at, at the brain biology of a fish and the brain biology of a human. And if a fish loses status, 
their serotonin systems are altered, their behavior is altered, and the same thing happens with humans. And what we mean by losing status as a teenager is anything from not being invited to a party, being humiliated online, you know, bombing a series of tests, a, a, a test that you cared about. It can be a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you ask someone, what does that feel like? A kid's going to say it feels like it feels awful. It feels horrible. Um, that those words, it feels awful, feels horrible. Those are human words used to describe a universal experience of losing status across vertebrate species, fish and birds and other mammals. So what we found is that status, it really affects mood. I have to say that when my kids were adolescents or they're in their early 20s now, you know, they'd be bummed out about things here and there. But it was, it was before we'd written this um, book. And I didn't really think about status per se. I didn't really think to, to ask them about, you know, well, you know, what <laughs> I, I just wasn't part of what I was. I was saying, how do you feel? Not things like, well, what's going on with popularity and, yeah. and, and you know, that sort of stuff. But we found that um, actually status is so important for survival in animal groups. Animals who have higher status, they, gosh, they have more food, they have more protection, they have more opportunities to mate with others. So uh, falling in status is, is the opposite. So that's really, we think, the evolutionary reason that it feels so good to rise in status and so awful to fall in status. It also gives some insight into social media and why social media can be so powerfully um, exciting, but also can make you feel so bad if you're on it for too long. I mean, not only are you sort of um, getting the, the feel good and then feel bad brain biology hits from, from your actual social group, but you're also, uh, many social media platforms are 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 false they're way way bigger than you would normally have there are people you don't even know on there there's celebrities who are right. professional professional risers in in the social status and you're kind of always put down if you're comparing yourself to a celebrity so so connecting these these social hierarchical systems in animals to our feelings and moods in humans we feel is a really powerful part of our book we are here with Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers talking about their book, Wildhood. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. And so what you see as normal across the animal kingdom is there isn't one way of doing it. It really varies depending on what's going on, what, what the resources are, but really paying attention to the environment and not having some fixed and rigid way of uh, responding. It's a little bit easier to talk about these issues when you're talking about them in a, in a penguin or a hyena and not, not in yourself. You know, sometimes teenagers, when they lose popularity, if they're humiliated, whatever it is, they really feel like it's a matter of life and death. And, you know, as, as, a, as a parent, I remember literally saying like, oh, come on, this is not a matter of life or death. But what I now understand is that actually, from an evolutionary perspective, the brain that teenagers are walking around with, losing status actually is a matter of life and death. And they have that retained biology. And so it actually, I think, can make parents more sympathetic for why their kids feel so awful when things happen like that. It can also be hard for teenagers because 
societally, they often fall at the sort of lower end of the hierarchy anyway, just because they're younger and have less experience and um, adults have had longer to to gather up yeah. all the, the power and the resources. And, and then also, um, we suggest in the book the idea of creating status sanctuaries for teens to just get a break from the assessment. I mean, the, these don't have to be like, you know, spa-like places of quiet contemplation. They're just really um, a moment in the day, a place, um, a group of people where you are not being socially judged, where you just get a break from trying to figure out if you're high or low or where you are, you can just be. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.